It's that time of the week again. Yes, that's right. It's flat out RC podcast time. Welcome back. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And this is the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Mainly planes, really. That's most of our guests. We really got to be honest. But uh, thanks for joining once again. We've got a good episode coming up. We're talking scale flying today with uh, Alex Butler who's president of the Victorian Scale Association, the VFSAA. You'll hear me, you'll hear that come up in our discussion. But uh, so um, going to be good to, um, for you to listen to my chat with um, Alex because it's quite informative. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to Alex, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what has been on my mind? Well, a lot. I've been very busy lately. I've been busy with work. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going overseas too. I'm, I'm going to the USA for work. If anybody's in the uh, Las Vegas region, send me a message. Uh, but I will be busy with work. I don't, I don't have a lot of, a lot of spare time. But um. That's coming up in about a month's time from the time I'm recording this. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, I'll make sure I've got a podcast episode ready to go so uh, there won't be any any uh, delay um, in getting uh, getting something out. Um, but, yeah, so been really busy. But uh, really starting to think about we're coming to that period of time, especially down here in Australia, where we elect our committee that represent our clubs, you know, president, secretary, treasurer, all those kind of positions. And I've got a fair bit of experience working with associations, been um, you know on committees and things like that, and and it's something that I've I've learned a lot about just through sheer experience, I suppose. And um, and I know that it's a thankless task. Um, people will say that anybody that's been on a committee knows that it's almost like when you put your hand up to be on a committee, there's a target that's put on your back as you take take your office kind of thing. Um, that people straight away start to speculate why you're doing it, and you know. Statements like, oh, it's just a boys' club and all that kind of stuff. Every committee that I've been involved with, most of the committee hated each other. Uh, and sometimes you need that tension to keep a balance, you know. Um, and so uh, I've never believed in the boys' club thing because it's a democratic vote that uh, the members elect the, their committee. So you can't take the boys' club unless it's a very, very sophisticated boys' club and there's a lot of, you know, Stuff goes on behind the scenes, and there's always politics. So, you know, here's a few of my tips for anybody's thinking about putting their hands up. One, they're going to put a target on your back. Two, people are going to think there's something wrong with you, and they're going to, there's going to be a lot of rumors floating around as, oh, so and so said this, and you probably didn't say it. I've had my own experiences where people have made up lies. You know, the best one was that I was looking at taking over my flying club, and I think it was either buying the field or selling the field. That was the best one that I heard. And that really started to spread. People saying that, oh, why would I buy a flying field? Like, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a pretty switched on businessman. My flying field, where I'm a member of, it's on a floodplain. It floods every few years. Why would I invest in land where that floods? Why would I buy a flying club? If I want to make a return on my investment, why would I go and buy a flying club that's in a floodplain? But sure enough, people did make um, up rumours and actions speak louder than words and um yeah, I haven't done anything like that. I'm busy paying off my own mortgages. I don't spend money to go and buy a flying field. And if I owned a flying field, I'd, I'd it would be my own flying field in a country property where I only had access to it, so I didn't have to deal with uh, other people. I could just fly whenever I want out of the, my back paddock. But um, but yeah, so you you get a target on your back, 
and, and, and it can happen for people that are sort of outspoken. Sometimes I'm outspoken, put a target on my own back. But uh, but know that, yeah, life's not going to be easy for you. You're not going to love, not everybody's going to love you, but that's okay. You can, you can, you can manage that as long as you're confident in your own abilities and, and you're, you're doing the right thing. Um, the other, the other side of the thing is, you know, the other point I want to make is you've got to start to understand human behavior and how to communicate with people effectively. I see a lot of issues within associations and clubs that have stemmed from poor communication that have come from the top filtering down to the average members. Anything that leaves sort of a grey area can then allow people to to draw conclusions or, you know, and remember, you've got a target on your back. So they're straight away thinking, oh, no, here we go. What's this person going to say? Building a good culture, I think, in clubs really helps. And, and I do look to the leaders for that, setting that tone. Sometimes you need to reprimand people and, you, and sometimes you need to kick people out of clubs that might hamper the culture of the club. You know, I, There's a few clubs that I really put on a pedestal when it comes to culture and that is um, a lot of the ones out in Gippsland way down here in Victoria. The Sale Club is a club that I think has really switched on. You know, Of course, now and again, you'll get the rogue member, but there's something that, there's a good vibe down there, um, a good, really good tone at the club, which I think drags everybody into um, a really positive vibe and again this is me looking outwards i'm not a member of the club but i have spoken to a few other people and they say yeah it's a pretty good club um where you go to other clubs and it's just like there's infighting and different factions that want to argue the toss you know if it's black someone's going to say it's white and it's you know vice versa it just keeps on going around in circles and neither party wants to budge so when you're on a committee you've got to deal with this so you've got to work out how to manage these people how to communicate with people so that they can come along with you on that journey and I think that most clubs do a pretty poor effort at doing that, whether it be um, you know, um, the club facilities, making decisions around club facilities and investments or um, you know, different rules and things like that. And, you know, we need rules. It was interesting. I was sitting in a meeting um, recently where I heard a guy from CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, talk about um, regulations in relation to model flying. And you'd be surprised they're there for a good reason. Um, you know, the CASA's got a lot of things to manage and they're pretty reasonable rules. Really, when you look at it, it's pretty reasonable and there's a reason why. I think that as a community, we've done a terrible job of translating or communicating the essence of the rules and the, the rationale behind them because if people saw a good presentation and, you know, communicated effectively, those people would sit there and say, gee, that makes a lot of sense. I get that now why CASA is stating that, you know, we have to have a 400-foot height limit and why you need to seek exemptions to have, fly higher than 400 feet because they're managing airspace where there are other users, you know, and so there needs to be separation of um, aircraft, and whether it be models or whatever. But um, on a side note, CASA really do like model flying. They're not going to get rid of it at all. They're trying to support model flying and, and make sure that it's kept safe and there's opportunities to fly. So that's pretty good. But, um, yeah, so um, communication is very important and, and understanding, you know, how to communicate with people in the words. And I don't get it right all the time, personally, myself. But um, but uh, you learn through experience sometimes. And um, so that's pretty critical. How do you take people on that journey with you? And so that they go, they go yep, I can see the rationale behind that. Um, sometimes it was interesting I was saying to somebody recently how leadership to me is not going to a group of people and saying, so what do you reckon we do? How do we get more members, right? Leadership to me is like, I think we need to really look at um, uh, you know, getting some more members. I have this idea. This is the idea. 
what do you think about my idea? That's leading people down a path to have a discussion. Uh, every time I've sat in a room where someone's sitting around, if you work in sales, sales managers love to sit down and go, team, we need to grow our sales. What do you reckon we need to do? My standard response that I tell people is turn around to your boss and say, so boss, you're telling me that you get paid all that money and you don't know what to do. So you've come to us, the lowly paid sales reps, to ask us what you think you should do and we should do to grow sales. Well, here's what we should do. First of all, you should go and I should have your job because if I'm going to come up with your ideas, then you might as well not be here because you don't have an idea because you just asked me. But often people think, oh, well, it's inclusive asking people. No, it's not leadership. If you Give them an idea and then drive a discussion and, and then you can workshop ideas and maybe go down a different path. But just throwing things up in the air going, so what do you think we should do about growing participation? Um, ends up nowhere. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Leadership is going to people with ideas and saying, what do you think? You know, um, a football coach doesn't sit there to the team and go, we're losing guys and girls. What do you reckon we do? What kind of coach thing's going to last? Anyway, final point, just be become thick-skinned because a lot of people sit there and say, oh, what do they do? They know, you know, that person doesn't do anything. We don't know. We don't know exactly what every individual is doing because we're not in their house or in their head uh, to, to know exactly what they're thinking, why they're thinking. So sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt that they might be working on something. You just may not know. Um, there's nothing wrong with going up to somebody and saying, so what have you been working on? What's in your agenda? Right? And they'll say, oh, I've been working on this. And more, more often than not, I go to my flying field and always give the, um, the groundsman heaps. I always tell them, look, bend down, have a look at how uneven this pit area is. What have you been doing? All tongue in cheek. And he'll tell me, oh, we did this and I want to go and do this, but I want to roll it, but it's not wet. And even in that banter, you get an understanding of that, geez, he's putting in a big effort, an effort that I couldn't commit to. So well done to him. I'll, I'll support him because he's got an idea. You know, he's doing okay. So enough of my yakking. If you're going to put your hand up to be on the committee, just think about what you're in for. Sometimes it's not all roses and chocolates and uh, fairies flying around in the garden. Time for my favourite part of the Flat Out RC podcast, and that is guest time. And this week's guest, we've got a good guest, Alex Butler. He reached out to me. Um, wanting to be on the podcast, you know, as a suggestion, which I'm all for. And I've had a few messages sent me about some ideas for guests, which is good. And I always appreciate that because that's the hardest part of this podcast is finding guests. And if anybody's got any friends or anybody think have a good story to tell, everyone's got a story. That's my motto. So uh, more than happy to have people on. So Alex is joining us. Um, some people might know Alex's dad, Clive Butler, who's passed away now, but was a pretty active uh, aero modeler in his own right, scale aero modeler and builder of many giant scale models. Um, Alex is sort of was born into the hobby and so has continued and now president of the Victorian Scale Association. So I thought I'd get him on and we'll have a chat about the Scale Association, what's involved the scale competition, and of course a lot about his flying activity as well. So enough of my yakking, over to my chat with Alex Butler. We're back talking scale model planes because we've got a scale guru on the podcast this week. Uh, Alex Butler, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, you you reached out to me because uh, you, you're responsible for sort of coordinating the Vic Scale, what is it, association, isn't it? 
Yeah, the VFSAA, so I'm currently the president of the um, VFSAA, or Vic Scale, as most people call it. Yeah, yeah. So you reached out to me and said, oh, can you help us sort of promote it? And, I, and what did I say? Of course. I always say, people send me <laughs> stuff. More than happy to help out. Uh, gives me something to talk about and uh, and helps just spread the word. The more people can do it, the better. So we are going to have a bit of a deep dive into that scale competition scene because it's interesting. It comes up a lot in podcasts that, um, you know, people like Stevie Melkman on or whatever. They said, oh, yeah, I used to compete in scale. And and uh, so we'll have a bit of a deep dive into that. But before we do, always like starting to get to understand the guest a bit more and share your story. Where did your journey in aero modeling begin? Yes, so, um, but well, it, it began well before I, I was around. Um, so my my father was an avid aero modeler and, and very big in the scale scene. So um, probably more people would know his name than mine, and that that's Clive Butler. Um, and so for from as long as I can remember, my my earliest memories are um, you know being at the flying field in Tasmania with my father at, at Phoenix Flyers um, right back in the the eighties. Um, and I was always following my dad around and, and, and watching him fly. Um, I, you know, I was that little kid that grew up sitting on the, the stool in my dad's workshop after dinner and just sitting there and watching him work and asking him questions and probably getting in the way and, and being mm-hmm. a general pain in the bum. Um, and so for, for as long as I can remember, I've, I've been involved in, in flying aero models and, um, and especially scale because that's, that's what my father did. So. Um, all I've ever really known was was scale modelling, um, and I, I think the story that you're going to hear is probably a fairly familiar one. I was um, I was into it when I was very young, and um, as I was growing up, I, I was very heavily into it. And then um, as I got older, and um, other things became <laughs> got in the way. Probably right when um, actually I was probably getting old enough to start flying rather than just watching my dad. Um, the, the family sort of moved away from each other and then me and my dad were in the same state and more so it dropped off and I grew up and got into um, cars and girls and nightclubs and, and yeah, things like that. And, yeah, um, but, you know the but story. Always had, yeah, yeah, but always had an interest in um, aero modelling and um, anything to do with aeroplanes really. Um, and then sort of um, over the years after that I, I would go and visit my, my father and um, either he was in Victoria or I was in Tasmania or the other way around, um, and I'd actually just go and visit him for flying weekends. So I'd, I'd go down and visit him and, and he'd say, what do you want to do? And I'm like, let's go flying, and we'd spend all weekend at the flying field and, um, you know, he'd get me back up to scratch and get me flying again. Um, and so that was sort of off and on again for, for um, quite a few years until um, I was at a stage where um, we could visit each other quite regularly. And um, I, I got stuck into to flying and I sort of had a car, so, so Dad was able to set me up with a model. And um, I think my very first model um, that I had that I was flying around was a, an old yellow Hustler trainer, um, which I, from memory was about 90% epoxy, 10% pulsar and, <laughs> and oil and grease and it wasn't much chop. And um, that was really just something for, for me to get um, you know, consistent on the sticks with. Um, and then, um, and then I moved on to actually flying um, my father's models. Um, I'm pretty, pretty fortunate that um, I remember I did my half wing um, at the time um, on a third scale fly baby, uh-huh. which was probably built to competition, competition status, and um, I, that's what I used to potter around with, and, and I learned to fly on um, after I'd sort of done my my bit of training on the hustler. Um, 
so that was sort of very fortunate. And then, um, yeah, on and off again, I sort of flew with my father and, and flew his models. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, sort of was never consistent because I had a, had a wife and um, yeah, we started a family and, and, and things like that. Um, there was a lot of things getting in the way. And um, after some time, actually, my my uh, yeah, my dad was sort of pestering me to, to start building. And I was always like, yep, yeah, going to do it, going to do it. Um, let's start. And, and um, I never got around to it. And then, um, unfortunately, my, my father passed away. And I sort of missed that opportunity. And I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to miss that again. And um, we had to go back to, to Tassie and pick up all his stuff. And so I inherited a, a, a double-story Quaker's barn full of scale models <laughs> oh, um, and said, all right, now, now's, the, now's the time. And so I had um, inherited you know, all his tools and his building equipment and his models and engines and, and everything. And so um, I uh, brought it all back over to Melbourne and um, quickly set myself up with, with one, of his, one of his models that I could take out and fly um, and ordered, a, ordered a, a kit online. So... Um, being fairly courageous and and under my dad's advice before he passed away, he suggested I started with a Zeroli P47, um, which not because it's a great model to to, to start building for your first um, plane. In fact, it's probably a horrible idea um, just because of the difficulty of it and building off a plane for your first go, but simply because he had an hundred an engine and some undercarriage yeah. <laughs> spare cow yeah. that I could use. Yeah. So, so, so what his his advice and I guess coming from someone who'd been building for, for thirty or forty years was, oh, it'll be easy to you know, a simple model to put together for, for my first build is um is quite difficult. Yeah. So, since then I've sort of um, you know, there was sort of off and on. I've been quite quite lucky that I've been consistently flying since since then, um, and and thrown my got straight back into to scale because that's that's what I grew up doing and, and what I knew how to do. Um, so when I uh, when I had inherited all my my father's stuff and I was in Melbourne and I wasn't a member of a club or anything, I I reached out to a few people who I had met through going to competitions with with my father and um, one of those people was was David Law. And I said, hey, look, this is the, the situation. Um, can you help me out? And I, I was really lucky that David sort of took me under his wing um, and introduced me to, to Greg Lepp. And, and between um, David and, and Greg, they spent many a week getting me flying and getting me sorted out and helping me set up my, my first models and, and things like that. Um, and now I've been able to get, like I said, a lot of consistent flying in, um, spending a fair bit of time doing some of my, my dad's big models in the air. Um, he built big scale models. Um, so we're talking sort of quarter scale, um, 3.5 scale and even one half scale model. Um, and I've uh, been working on getting those in there and, and sorting through his stuff. And as soon as I could, I, I jumped on the scale, scale group and so sort I of said, hey, how can I help out? What can we do? Um, and then from there sort of led to, to me sort of joining the committee and then um, becoming the pres- president. Yeah, gee, it's a it's a bit of a journey, but it it always amazes me when you have that passion for for all things flight. It yeah. never goes away. You can say the same about um, people that are really into cars. That you know, I always yeah. say the cars is in my blood. You know, from you know those teenage years all the way through. You know, even to not too far, or still sort of to this day, there's always been some sort of vein of some car or, or now motorbike exploits and stuff like that. Um, and I always say this, I'm never going to lose it. It will wax and wane whether I, you know, spend money on it or not. But um, 
you know, it was definitely planted in you and, and it stuck, which is good to see. Now, it sounds like you have inherited a lot of models. First of all, I don't know where you're putting them all. Did you have to buy a bigger house or something to put all these massive models? Because I just... We did. We had we had um, I had them in storage um, in a French warehouse, um, and 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 then eventually we me and my wife were looking at moving, and we we, we found a place with a nice big, um, I think it's twelve by nine meter shed in the back. Oh, that's um, what I know. And that that yeah, that meant I, I was able to get everything out of storage, um, and, and I, I've had to I've had to move a lot of stuff on. Um, the the collection was sort of um, that big. That it was just I'm never going to get time to get to everything and, and everything needs um, going over and new equipment and, and and things like that to get up to date and um, you know I've had to move a, a fair bit of it on um, and I've got it down to now sort of five or six select models that I, I really want to keep and, and hold on to and they'll just add into to my collection as well so um, and like you said in, in that sort of rambling to me saying what was happening it's um it didn't sound like there was a lot of flying on going on during those years but it, it was always something that I was thinking about and um, I remember sort of when I was younger you know you'd run around and I lived near a school and you'd hear a whippersnipper go off and I'd be like oh is that, is that someone flying, flying a plane over at the school or something mm-hmm. and it was just always in the back of my mind was flying and um like I said I'd, I'd go down to Tasman and see my dad and be like let's go flying and I could just sit out at the flying field all day and fly ourselves and watch people fly and yeah it's always a good day out when you go to the field I, I love it like I'm my visits to the field are few and far between at the moment due to life but um, but when I'm there, you know, when I've had a good day at the field, I get home and I just feel great. I just feel like I've achieved yeah. something. I'm so relaxed and whatever. Um, you know, it's always a good day out. Now, tell us a bit about the planes you now got in your hangar then. What do you got? Yeah. So at the moment, um, and I'll, I'll go, go through them in the order of <laughs> where I'm at and fixing them up. So I've got a 3.5 or 35% scale Wiraway, which you may have seen. Um, that's got a Moki 250 in it. Um, and recently, sort of, well, when I say recently, probably in the last six months, did a did a test flight out at Pean Darks. Um, and I just need to go through and change the gear off. And I've had to send the motor off to get serviced. Um, so that's not far off being back in the air. I've got a 118 inch Zero which has got a um, Moki 150 in it. Gee. That's just off a new, new needs some new servos. You only need to update the electrics in it, so new receiver, new, new servos, um, and a bit of a tidy up, and, and that's ready to go. Um, I've got a quarter-scale Wildcat, uh, which is just about to be refurbed. So um, I, that, again, takes the, the Moki 150, so I want to sort of clean that up and repaint job it and, and put some um, yeah, more detail and things like that on it. We've got the third third scale fly baby that I learned to fly on, um, somewhat still attached to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got I've got a, a, a very small, it must be a fifth or a sixth size camel, which is the one that my father took to Top Gun which must have been in the 90s, early 90s. Oh, okay. um, and I've got a couple of other little sort of 90 size things. Um, oh, and I've got a quarter scale um, travel air, which again is um, designed for the Moki or the 150. Oh, yeah. um, and that's again, that's just a little clean up and, and that would be right to go. 
Um, and in another workshop, which is sort of on getting some assistance from someone to get finished, is a 35% boomerang, CAC boomerang, which has got a Nike 250 in it as well. Gee, that's a lot of Mokis that you've got. Yeah, currently, and I, I just picked up another one, so I've currently got four in the shed, which is, I think, is too many. So <laughs> <laughs> I move one along at some stage, or the wife might ask me to move one along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How much how much maintenance goes along with those monkeys? Well, I haven't had any of them running too consistently because you know the things are being restored and stuff, um, and it's different. I, I seem seem to get different responses from different people. If I asked my father what the maintenance was, it was no, they're fine. That they're built like tractors, they go forever. Don't oh, yeah. worry about it. Um, and then other people are very particular about their maintenance. Um, and sort of after every flight, they're checking you know, tappers and knockers and, and, and things like that and all of them up. So um, it kind of depends who you speak to. And, and I think the other thing as well is um, the newer version of the Moki seem to be a little bit cleaner than the older version. So a couple of the ones that I've got are older versions and um, they seem to be a little bit more prehistoric and, and yeah. like I said, a bit more like a tractor. So, but, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're worth it. Um, uh, you know, the guys that I deal with up at DA are fantastic with them and, and when I've needed to, I shoot them up there, they fix them up and if there's anything needs doing and, and send it back to so they're fantastic up there. But yeah, they're worth every effort. They just sound so good. Yeah, they do. So what's sort of your go-to model when you go to the field then, if you just want to have a bit of a punt around? Yeah, so, so that, that's that's the stuff that my, my, my father sort of left with me. Um, I've got a couple of fun fly models. I... First model I bought myself was a um, pilot decathlon, 180 inch pilot decathlon with a um, DLE 55. Um, and that is just bags of fun. Um, it's it's you know, fun to be thrown around, it dawdles around, it's a dream to land and fly. So um, if I can, I, I uh, just chuck that in the car. I've also got um, a 90 inch uh, Edge 540. Again, you know, beautiful thing to fly. Um, and I've just picked up a, a little quarter scar tied them off, which I'm hoping um, to get some calm weather for. So oh, they're cool. sort of the things that I'll quickly chuck in and just go go for a flight. What about when you um, when you're competing? You, what's what's your model that you're competing with? Yeah, so I've been actually de- competing with the uh, decathlon. So um, I've been flying. Uh, competing in the flying only class because I don't have a SCAR model that I've completed to, a, I guess, a satisfactory level to go in F4H or F4C. Um, so I've been entering flying only and, and just flying the decathlon. Um, and like I said, it, it's, it's perfect for that. It's super fun. It's easy. Um, it flies really nicely. So um, that's been my sort of bread and butter for the, for the last few years while we've been able to compete through, through COVID and things yeah. like that. Okay, the pilot RC kits—they're nice. I love the cathlons. You know, I say that every week, but I want, in every episode I say I love the cathlons, and I'll get out of the way, and I love super chipmunks. But um, but yeah, yeah. the cat and the pilot RC one—how does that fly? Because they'd be be pretty light, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, it, it is reasonably light. Um, but you know, for for me, it was the first sort of bigger model that I put together myself, and I, I put it together, and um, yeah, we went out and and we test flew it. And, I don't think it needed any trim or anything. It just doubled off off the ground, and um, you know, with the DLE fifty five in it, it didn't need any weight or anything up the front. Um, and I can fly it, fly it very scale and very slow, and um, you know, it, it's got that big wing on it. So sometimes if there's a little breeze and you're coming to land, it's almost hard to put it on the ground. Sometimes, 
um, but you just power up and you want to do some aerobatics and, and, and do that, you can as well. So it's a, the best of both worlds. Yeah. No, nah, good playing the old decathlon. Pilot RC make a good kit as well. So uh, Yeah. The good. only thing about the Pilot RC kits is they always have to put the word pilot at the in the tail, and I wish they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wish it's, this is one of those things I go, oh, actually, I've met the owner of Pilot RC, and I should have said to yeah. him, Tony, you don't need to put pilot on the back of everything. It just ruins the look, <laughs> especially the scale planes. Put in the aerobatic planes, it's fine. But on all the scale planes, just leave it off. It'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're going to have a petition. Please remove pilot from your pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you've got you've got a fair few things uh, in the hangar there. You've obviously got to try yeah. and cut these around, haven't you? Yeah, it's just a, a, um, a cut-down horse float. So um, to get a couple of decent-sized models in there, um, need to get, I need to get one of those nice uh, shelves so full of wings because I, I can get a couple of fuselages in and then you're like, oh, where do I put the wings and you're sliding them down in between places. So I think I might get one of those shelves just up the top. Um, and, and that puts, uh, puts makes up a bit more space for me. Yeah, it's good having a shelf. I've got a shelf in mine, but it's full of aeroplanes. But um, yeah, that's, that's one thing we always forget. And, and when the planes get bitter, bigger, the wings get bigger as well. So yeah, you know, getting yeah. the end of the field is just as bad. That's it. And I, I see these, uh, the guys who do IMAC and, and they've got, you know, five or six models in there and they're all lined up. And, and unfortunately with my stuff, because it's our stuff, they're all in different configurations. So you'll get one model where the wing comes off completely and it's nice and skinny so you tap it down the side and then you'll get another one where just the outer portion of the wings come off yeah. because the undercarriage is, is there. And, you know, um, some of the models that don't look that big, you can actually only fit one in the trailer because it just is an awkward shape or, or whatever the situation is. So um, sometimes it's, it's um trailer doesn't have as much space as you think it does. Yeah. Uh you haven't been tempted to get into jets at all. I um I need to get into jets like I need a hole in the head. No, I have, <laughs> I have been, and, and the thing is, I'm so I, like I love scale, and that's my bread and butter, and that's that's um, what I want to do. But I really do enjoy all facets of, of aeromodeling, and um, especially down at Pakenham and a lot of the events around there, you see a lot more jets, and um, gee, some of them are impressive and. Um, I, I really started to sort of get interested in it. and again some of the scale jets. Um, I, I think they're just amazing, but it's just the I, price yeah, tag that goes I, I with them. It's the, the, the price tag, and um, yeah, you, I've already got two or three types of fuel set up and running at home just for, for the different engines I've got at home, and, and that would just be another a new thing. Yeah, to learn. another so, level of complexity. I, I, yeah, that's it. So I, I think down the track, it's it's definitely on the cards, but um, not anything straight away. <laughs> Really, when you think about it, right? It, uh, you know, we all know that jets cost a bit more than the average model, um, and the bigger you go, the more expensive they become. But it's amazing how people work themselves into position where they'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on a model plane. I was just, yeah. as, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that. Isn't it an interesting concept that they all started out life, you know, with a trainer or something similar, and that grew so much that they didn't mind committing copious amounts of their hard-earned to that yeah. model plane. It's, it's a really – okay, people do have other hobbies that spend a lot of money on car racing and things like that. But, um, but gee, it's an interesting thing. They, they love it that much that they'll spend that much. It's it's funny how quickly um, it adds up to and how, how quickly you convince yourself it, it's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm currently working um, – I've got a – I bought a top RC model secondhand 
with the plan of, of um, repainting it and detailing it so I can compete in, in F4H. Um, and so I so I sort of was looking at a um, uh, one of the kits on, online and you were like, okay, a couple of thousand dollars for that. You're like, okay, maybe I can sort of justify that. I've got a, um, a motor at home that I can put in it and, and things like that. And then I ended up buying one secondhand with a motor included with a, had a, a Moki in it. So it was <laughs> reasonably expensive. And then I'm like, okay, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's all I've got to spend. It's got all its gear in it. And I'm like, oh, I need to put a new receiver in it. And so I've got that. And I'm, okay, now I need to buy this paint and now I need to buy that. <laughs> and, then, and then what was like a little bit over the budget, uh, over the, the months as I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, okay, I've got a fair bit of money invested in this model now. And it's not really what I thought. <laughs> the cost was not really what I thought the cost was, but um, I'm happy with it. I'm, I'm happy with my decision. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those things where we uh... – we just convince ourselves by, you know, it's, it, the, the expense sometimes comes in 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 patches. You know, okay, I bought the yeah, airframe yeah. that was a thousand bucks. Okay, now I got to buy the servos. Gee, that's another thousand bucks. And now I got to buy the motor. Well, I need the motor. You know, so you're right. I like that idea of we we do justify it to ourselves. And if anybody, if any sensible person that wasn't in the hobby was listening to us, they'd go, "These people have gone crazy." But as yeah. I said, people go and buy a car and they go and restore it and exactly. they'll spend exactly. thousands and thousands. So you, you know what? I've been talking to people about it. You know, we've got our um, – ele- well, when this goes to air, we would have uh, had our, our election here in Australia for yeah. the um, federal government. And uh, and I heard someone on the radio talking about how good we've got it in Australia and how, you know, if we go back 30 years, most households had one television. Now we have multiple televisions and a and a jet ski and a motorbike and uh, you know we go on holidays all the time and whatever. And I was thinking, yeah, it's pretty true. Just go to go to a jet event and go and see how good we're how good we're going here in Australia when so many people can turn up with mega expensive models. Something's you know I, I'm happy I'm in Australia. We're we're, we're doing all right and. Um yeah, you know, I, I I was having that sort of conversation with my my wife the other day. We really talked about the the house and the two cars in the driveway, and I've got a garage full of models and 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 you know not just the bare essentials, like nice models and, and nice engines and stuff. And then you know I, I'm a member at P and Dark, so I drive out to this beautiful field with a clubhouse and multiple runways and and things like that. And um, yeah, we're pre- we're pretty lucky. <laughs> we are. Well, if you want to be an aero modeler, come to Australia because it's a place to be. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so obviously, you do like building models. Yep, yep. So I have enjoyed um, building. It's you know, it's uh, it's something that I've had to learn to enjoy. Um, it takes a lot of patience, and um, I um, have started building. Like I said, I, I started with the Zeroli ninety-four inch Thunderbolt, and I'm just building that off the plant. So I bought a full kit for that. So that's sort of uh, probably estimate sort of halfway through. Um, but unfortunately, it keeps getting interrupted by other projects or shiny mm. things or, or things that happen. You know, you um, you go out to the field and something happens to one of the models, and you want to get it back in the air quickly, so you stop building and start repairing. Um, and, and and like I said, most recently, I've um, I've put down the building on that so that I could get stuck into um, repainting this uh, and redetailing this model for F4H. Um, so it's it, it's been a slow build, but but I've been enjoying it and. Um, being my first build, it's, oh, it's a learning curve. So anyone that I fly with, unfortunately, gets stuck with me reaching out with a, a million questions and, and asking how does this happen and is, 
yeah, does it matter if I do this? And yeah, am I going to going to break something if I, if I do that? And um, I think that's what's really good about the, the scale communities. Everyone's really keen to, to help each other. So I think when they see someone who is having a crack at, at building, um, everyone's really keen to, to help out and provide answers and, and help me along the way. So it's, it's been a great learning curve. Um, and, and sometimes I just enjoy going to the workshop. I thought there have been days when I could go flying and, and you know, I've only got so many spare days in the week and I go, ah, just go out to the workshop and, and build for the day and get just as much satisfaction out of it. That's true. The, uh, it's funny. I always say I'm doing a uh, psychological study on aero modelers, but we are quite forthcoming with advice, aren't we, to each other? That you know, and often you'll get ten different answers to the same question. But uh, I've found, especially almost like the special interest groups, because um, they generally represent the really avid modeler, whether it be aerobatics or otherwise, or whatever. Um, and you know, and even if there's, a, I've, I've witnessed this at clubs. Newcomers come to the field. And there'll always be the core group, you know, there's a few bunch of people that are willing to sit down and spend the time and really guide the newcomers and that kind of thing. And I think it's, it must be something in our psyche as well that we, we we like to talk about it and share our knowledge as well. And so it's actually quite a good thing, you know. But you know what? There's nothing like just getting your hands dirty and getting into there and just giving it a crack, is there, as far as learning Yeah, that's knows. it. And, and I think that's one of the, the, the big things, especially when I was starting to build and, you know, well, I still am starting, but... I remember the first time I, I pinned a few pieces of wood down to the plan and I was so nervous about gluing the bits together in case I made a mistake um, and, and getting to certain parts of the plan and not being sure what to do next and and, and stressing and thinking and, and through. And, and after a while, you just go, hey, if, if it doesn't work, just make it again. Like, it, it, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you stuff something up, just, it's just wood and glue. Like, just take it apart and do it again or, or rebuild it or whatever the situation is. And um, So you've just got to get stuck in and, and try it. And, um, you know, I would say most of my learning that I've had um, since, since getting into it has been from repairing models because it forces you to work things out that you didn't know, you know, a model you didn't build or, or you know, whether it maybe it was one you did, but when you have a, 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 an accident or you break something, you've got to really think about it in a different way. You're not building something new and, and you've just got to get stuck in and, and have a go and work out how to fix it. That is definitely true. And, and I think we forget that, that sometimes a lot of these models, it is just glue and wood and that we can't yeah. fix it if we make a mistake, especially, I suppose, if you're, if you're scratch building or kit building, you know, you get given a plan, we'll just go and cut the part out. It's not that hard, really, sometimes to, to cut some of these parts out if you if you stuff up. But um, but I always say, you know, your, your first model is your sacrificial model uh, in as far as the learning curve. The second one, if you had to build another one, you'd probably build it in half the time. You go, yeah, I've done this. I um I for a very long time before I started the Thunderbolt had a Balsa USA um, quarter scale cub kit sitting on my my bench. And um, I'd read the instructions through and through, and I was thinking, I'm going to and I was just about to start it, and, and I decided in the end, I said, when you build this model and finish it, are you going to be interested in flying it? Um, and I had convinced myself that I probably wasn't that interested in flying it, a cub and, and spending so much time, and, and I sort of got moved it on and, and, and got stuck in, you know, ordered the Thunderbolt and got stuck into that. But I think if I had to look back at that and, and starting off with something with, a, with an instruction book or whatever, I reckon I would have had that scale model flying into three or five months or something like that compared to the two years I've been working on yeah. the Thunderbolt. When it comes to models, though, that raises an interesting point, though, and, and I do have this as a question on my list, is 
do you gravitate towards one type of or one category of models, you know, whether it be aerobatics or warbirds or something? My, um, I, I think I'm fairly heavily influenced by what, what my, um, my father was into because um, that's what I grew up around. I, I love World War II stuff. Um, the World War II fighters, I guess, because they were the pinnacle of, of propeller planes and, and, and propeller plane technology at, at the time. And um, so I love I love those. But there, there's so much other stuff that I, I like. I like to see you know, civilian stuff, aerobatic stuff. Um, probably the more classic aerobatic stuff, you know, like the pits and the, the Christian Eagle and things like that, um, I enjoy. Um, and there's some civilian stuff. I think some of that Golden Ages um race stuff is, is quite cool as well, you know, the GBs and, and Bulldogs and, and things like that. I, I quite like that because I quite like that golden age era of mm. everything really. I mean, did everything with my class and style back then. Um so yeah, I would say mainly World War Two fighter stuff. Um but uh, yeah, there's a bit of everything. I think there's a bit of everything out there for, for everyone. Yeah. That's definitely true. There's more than more than enough choice in this hobby, isn't there? You can go in multiple different yeah. directions. But, um, yeah. No, it's interesting because you, you have got quite a, a mixed bag of, of, of models there. I didn't know which, which way you're going to answer that question. So, um, but, well, I did have a gut feel it may be down that warboard route, but, you know, seeing some of the aerobatic planes, the catalogs sort of threw a spanner in the works. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, and I've had a scale to cap one in the past, and they're nice. And and for me, it's sort of um, probably more about the scale model itself. You know, you, you can see a, a plane that's normally, if it was sort of in an ARS or something, might be a bit plain. But when you see a really scaled one where someone's put a lot of time and effort into it, they, they they're just gorgeous. Um, I don't know if you saw it. Um, uh, the Monticello flying, um, somebody had that that dragonfly there. Oh, no, the Rapide, sorry, um, which was a, a old uh, biplane, twin-engine biplane. Yeah. And I, I think you would probably get bored of flying that in about 10 minutes, but, geez, it was gorgeous, and there was so much time and effort put into That's it. That's the, the yellow one, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just uh, beautiful to look at. Yeah. yeah. That's a yeah. amazing, yeah. And it's one of those models you just keep on looking at it, you know. That's why I always yeah. say that aerobatic model. I love aerobatic models. Ninety nine percent of my hangers aerobatic planes, but when you put them next to a plane like that, they just that's boring. You just move from it really quick and go, yep, yeah, it's just another aerobatic plane. But you go and look at that, and you just keep on looking, going, look at look at this, and the color scheme yeah. was awesome, and uh, but yeah, I'm the only thing is, oh yeah, I'd look at it and go, oh, I'll fly a few circuits and I'll be bored, but um, it does look good. But I think that's the same as, um, you know, if someone pulls out a, a Hangar 9 um, pits, you know, the S2 pits, yeah. um, and you go, yeah, that's a nice model. But then you see something like David Law's pits, um, and, and you could sit there and fly that all, all day or, and, and look at it all day. And um, that's where sort of my love of scale comes from, you know, when you, know, you compare a scale model compared to sort of just an um, out-of-the-box model or something like that. It's sort of it's really intriguing. That is definitely true. David Law's pits is amazing, and he's had it for such a long period of time. When you think yeah. about it, and um, and he's not afraid to fly it. I've seen it, I've seen it fly so many times now, and lots of photographs of it. But um, but yeah, it's such a good model that plane. Now that brings me on to the whole scale competition scene yeah. because it's pretty good in Australia, in Victoria. We're probably you know uh, there's some good modelers around the the country, but in Victoria. You know, we often see the the Australian world champ representatives coming. You know, but basically David Law and uh, Noel Finlay and um, 
and uh, well now Melissa Law as well is going over to the world champs, upcoming world champs. Uh, so we've got a pretty good scene here. Um, so let's just you know let's start by you know what is the scale competition all about? Yeah, sure. So um, really, really the, the the basics of it is is we're we're looking for um, in most categories a combination of the most scale looking aeroplane that that flies the most scale. Um, Flight essentially is, is what we're looking at. Um, so there's there's two components, and, and when I say that, we're, we're talking about um, the two main categories, which is F4C and F4H. Um, and then there's so there's the first part, which is the judging criteria on the model, um, and depending on what category you go into, that that changes. But essentially, we're looking at you know um, the three views and the, and photos of the real one compared to to the um, model that the competitor has. Um, presented and how accurate that is. So they're looking at outline details, markings, paint, things like that, um, and they get they get a score for that. And then uh, after they they have that score, they um, go around and, and we fly, fly rounds, and in each round um, again he's judged um, and, and presented with a score at the end. Um, and whoever has the best combined score would win that category. So there's two elements to it, and it makes it interesting because some people build really well um, and, and they're flying probably isn't their strong suit and other people um, fly better than they build, and then you get some people who are good at both. So um, there's um, a chance, you know, I've, um, I've been to competitions with my father where he, he's won or, or come placed very well purely because he had such a good style score and he didn't fly so well. Um, and then, um, you know, things have happened the other way around as well. So there's the two elements to it. We also um, do a flying only category. So this is a category where there's no style judging. You can just rock up and, and, and fly your model. Um, it needs to be um, a a scale plane um, it can't be sort of a um, plane that doesn't exist in real life um, so for example i've been flying my decathlon and that's straight out of the box so i haven't done anything to it um, and, and i can fly that in flying only and, and um, could be competitive for that um, the flying element of that and this is the same for for all three categories um, we do uh, similar to i guess i we do 10 maneuvers um, obviously two of those are takeoff and landing um, we have two compulsory manoeuvres uh, in that, which at the moment are the descending 360 circle and the other one is the figure eight. And then you need to fill in another six manoeuvres inside that to, to make the 10. Okay, so um, ways you can ways do those. Every category, no matter what kind of plane you, you fly, has to fly those two manoeuvres. Those two manoeuvres. Every flight does that, yeah. yeah and then say... Um, and then the other manoeuvres, does the competitor pick those manoeuvres and, and, and state what they're going to be? Yep, yep. And so there's a whole whole bunch of manoeuvres you can pick, um, you know, loops, rolls, chandelles, stall turns, victory rolls, four-point rolls, all, 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 all number of manoeuvres you can do. Mm. And you're judged on each manoeuvre. So take off your, your eight manoeuvres in the middle and landing and you get a final score. Um, you're also judged, um, you also get a score on, um, I think they call it realism, um, and I think the other one is sound sound and presentation. Um, and so it sort of all goes together to, to create a good score. The thing with 
with scale is what you're trying to do is fly the model as, as close and as accurately to what the real one would look like flying. So if you have a, a Sopworth camel, which is a slow old biplane, you can't tear it around this guy absolutely flat out, you'll, you'll get sort of markdown points and, and things like that. So you, you're trying to fly the model as, as accurately and as close to what the real one would do. Is there, do you get any points for difficulty? Um, no, so there's not necessarily points for the difficulty. There are some manoeuvres that have what they call a, a K factor on them. So take off and landing have a K factor, so they are judged slightly higher than, than some of the other manoeuvres. Um, but it's up to you to pick um, your manoeuvre. Um, so, um, you know, if, you, if you're sort of smart, you pick ones that you, you can do well and your model does well. Um, and then also it, it needs to be to the type of model you've got. So, so for example, if you're entering a, um, an aerobatic model and you come through and do a manoeuvre straight and level flight, you, you're going to get marked down a little bit because that's not not really very suited to the model. <laughs> Damn. Um, I was going to bring my model yeah. to fly, fly right-hand <laughs> circuits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, whereas you know some of the other stuff, so um, you know, big people who have twin engine things that are, are not aerobatic and stuff, they are. They might be doing more things like triangle turns and procedure turns and um, approaches and, and things like that. Okay. If you have a, um, a crop dusting plane, could you? Could that be one of the manoeuvres? A, a low pass? Yeah, you could do that. So yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So you could do a dump on the ground. So um, which you know. You, if you're doing a manoeuvre that's maybe outside the norm, you'd, you'd speak to the judges first and say, look, this is what I intend to do, um, and then they're able to judge it based on what, what you said you're going to do. So um, mm. for that, you'd say, look, I'm going to do a low pass and drop. Um, what do you know? Um, yeah, we've seen the, the big crop dusters that actually drop drop liquid, so they would say we're coming in to do a low pass and we're going to drop across um, the, the strip and then you know, pull out again, and, and you'd be able to judge, judge it on that. Um, the other thing that is with scale competition, scale flying, that I, th I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's different to IMAC, is that, or, um, is that all the manoeuvres need to be done directly in front of you and in front of the judges. I always thought that IMAC you had to do, you had to um, uh, position, uh, well, there are certain manoeuvres in IMAC. There's like the, uh, a turnaround manoeuvre that will be done at either end of the box kind of thing. And yep. then there's other things that, you know, I think you can centre. Um, but yep. I was told that, with, you know, say like a roll, for example, I'm, I, I, when I fly a roll, I aim that the inverted phase of the roll is directly in front of me. So that means my manoeuvre is centred. No, not in iMac. That You don't get judged on centering that, you know, if you've no, got to do a loop. It's just as long as it's in the box. Yeah, you, you know, if you've got to do a loop, it's they're looking for roundness of the loop, not necessarily that it's right in front of you. Okay, it's easy to do it when it's right in front of you, but um, with pattern though it is, I'm yeah, it isn't. Yeah, that's. Correct. But I yeah. like that idea and that discipline of, yeah. you know, putting in front of in front of the judges, right in front where it should be. Yeah, and that's right. And so that's what we scale. You're looking for, yeah. You know, for example, it's a the loop. We're looking for the roundness and the, the perfect roundness, and and it's got to be centered, so it's going to be the same amount on one side as the other. So. Um, yeah, which makes it really interesting if you get a bit of a breeze down the strip, you know, you've got to counter for that sort of stuff to ensure it's, it's um, directly in front and, and, and things like that, which make it interesting, especially in Melbourne. We often you know, very rarely have still days, yeah. Now, a question for you, though, that relates to the, the judging of the scale, scale model in that category. In local competition, you get someone like David Law comes with his pits to, to compete. 
it's been judged so many times. Or are yeah. you judging, you know, because you could give it the same score and go, well, the same as last time. You've done anything to it? No, it's the same yeah. as last time. But yeah, how, how does that work? That, that's what we do. So so for those who have competed before, we, we allow them to, to be judged for, for the first time um, and then they can continue to use that score in, in VIC scale comps unless they make changes or they say, hey, look, now I've got new documentation or something's changed, I want it to be rejudged. Um, so that, that saves time for us not having to okay. catch the same models all the time so um, and, and the time and effort that takes for the competitor as well. So that's definitely something we should do. Okay, good. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm yep. learning something as we go. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I, what I do love about competition uh, is most competition, whether it be well, any anything really, even if it's a gliding competition like that, what you're trying to do is really excel at one at a discipline. And often, what I see in IMAC pattern and scale is we're aiming for precision of flight. And uh, and there's a reason why anybody that's really committed to competition ends up being a pretty good flyer, whether it's scale, IMAC, or pattern. Uh, and even pylon, if you if you're a really committed pylon guy, like that's a totally different skill set in itself yep. and a very challenging thing. And even gliding, gliding, there's so many different facets to, to to come to grips with, and that's just through sheer experience, I dare say. Um, those guys get good, but but. Scale is one of those things where you are judged to a criteria of precision. How do you go about finding judges? Like I know with IMAC and Patton, they'll rotate judges. Do you do the same kind of thing with the scale flying? So the competitors judge each other? Yeah, pretty much the competitors will end up judging each other. So those who are more experienced will will judge. Um, we, we split it out so that... Um, you know, one category, you know, the, the, the more experienced guys from flying only will, will judge the F4C or the F4H guys um, and, and so on. So we, we share those responsibilities. Um, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of the events, there's not an endless amount of volunteers and things, so we have to, to be creative. Um, but the I guess what it comes down to is provided the judging is consistent across all competitors, it doesn't matter if we judge a loop a nine or a six, as long as the same loop is being judged the same way in, in mm. every round, um, the, the result will take care of itself. Yeah. I always find, like when I've had to judge competitions, the winner was a mile ahead of everybody. I've rarely been in a situation in my experience, and I've, you know, I'm not saying my experience is extensive, but I, mean, I was judging freestyle aerobatic comps in China and stuff, and and you look at the, the winner was just miles ahead of everybody else. So that made the judges job a lot easier like yeah he won by a mile but there were three three of us sitting side by side and we'd all would give different results so for example martin brandmuller from austria would he was you know one and i'm going what poor guy he did all right give him a five and but we yeah. always said as long as we all stay consistent to our style of judging it will all still work out you know yeah um, what he would judge a one i'd judge a five what he judged a five i'd probably judge an eight and so I was, you know, we had to be consistent in that in that thing, and, and but the winner always stood out. But uh, you know, how many people are you getting on average to to an event? Um, look, it, it sort of varies on the event. Um, we're usually getting enough to to run a field for for each category. Um, normally, it would sort of be between ten and and twenty entries. Um, we've probably got capacity to take a few more, so we've really sort of been trying to to encourage um, more people to come down. Um, what we tend to find is it's a little bit more difficult to get people in F4C or F4H. 
Um, there are certainly people out there with, with models that, that fit that category that we'd love to see come down. Um, and then there are certainly some guys who, um, you know, based on what, what they do and how they fly, we, we could see definitely come to flying only and then very quickly jump up into those categories as well. So we're, we're, we're um, always looking to sort of extend and, and get bigger and have more people at our events. Um, you know, we, we mainly run one-day events and we do a, a two-day event in Shepparton, which we've got coming up, which I'd like to talk about later if we, we, we yeah, can. Yeah, um, but but we'd love to be in a situation where we, we have somebody competitive go, hey, maybe we need to run another two-day event or, or, or something like that. So it um, was always plenty of flying. We usually sort of get three rounds in um, in a day's flying. So um, any more than that, and um, you are starting to get a little bit tired um, when you're competing. It is you probably know it's a little bit different to just going out and having a fun fly um, after three day after three sort of concentrate you know rounds where you're concentrating a period. You're sort of starting to get a little bit tired, so it tends to be enough in, in a one day event. Yeah, well, it's interesting that um, I like the idea of a one day event because I think the two day events that often happen around pattern flying and and IMAC can can put people off, especially when they have to travel a bit of a distance to get there. But um, having that one day event, especially if it's locals, um, pretty good. But look, if you're going to run a two day event, going up to Shepparton is a pretty good place to go, isn't it? What's what's that event all about? Why is it a two day? Yeah, so that's that's our main event for the year. So that's the Vic Scale Trophy. Um, and I, I think at one stage in the past, they used to call it the, the Masters or, or they used to be the state, or state champs or, or something like that. But, but that's our main event. And, and, and we run it over two days because we want to try and encourage those who um, maybe a little bit further out of town or, or even the guys from New South Wales, if they want to come down, we get a few competitors come down from Albury and stuff like that. But um, it, it's over Queen's birthday weekend. So it's a Saturday and Sunday of that. And then you obviously have Monday to, to, to travel back home. But, you know, it's a really good opportunity to get up there. We, um, we go up there, have a couple of really good days of flying. We run all three, three categories. Um, we can, over the two days, you might get, um, you know, four or five rounds of flying in over the two days, which is good. And, uh, of course, we, uh, we always try to catch up for dinner on the Saturday night and uh, have a few beers and, and, and just relax, which well, I think for some people is the best part of the event is just to get out and see everyone. That's what I like. You know, that's where I excel. Uh, food and drink is my specialty when it comes to aeromodeling. Yeah. And um, I was just thinking, you know, like, Shepparton's a good place to go and the field's awesome there. And and I was just thinking it's also just an opportunity to get everybody out and, and, and you know, Having a night out together, which we we when you think about it, the average era modeler probably never never does that unless they've travelled to go to an event and made the effort to stay over. But um, gee, it's good fun. When yeah, you, when you yeah, can just get away from the flying field, yeah. go to the local pub and have a meal and a drink together, it's uh yeah, and you feel everyone relax and just settle down and. You probably get a chance to have those conversations you don't at the, at the flying field because everyone yeah. sort of, you know, can be quite busy at the flying field at times and, and, and coming and going and doing all sorts of stuff. But to have everyone in one spot where you're sort of just locked in and you go, hey, we can all just, just relax a little bit. And, um, yeah, it's really good. I'd go with the strategy, you know, see, you know, if I was at a scale comp, I'd, I'd be always be thinking about the comp and I'd be at the pub trying to find my nearest competitor that might be, be beating me and then prime them with alcohol to put up the game. <laughs> And they turn up a bit worse for wear the next day, and and oh, I've been on the water all night, so I'm okay. You, look, people, it's tactics, right? You got to do anything to win nowadays, and if that means you've got to get your fellow competitor drunk, well, we condone that here at Flat Out RC. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. But yeah, well, most dairy models, I know it's um, <laughs> you need quite a few beers to get them to a point where it impacts them. We've yeah. all had a lot of practice. I'll tell you what. Look, Alex, I can introduce you to a drink called the mini beer, right? So <laughs> please do. Like w- that's what we had at Wang Jets this year, and yeah. um, a few people got got wobbly legs for some reason as a result of the uh, the mini beers. But here is a challenge to you: is you're going to go out, and uh, when you're out, wherever you go, just say, "Do you serve mini beers?" And if they don't, then find somewhere else. But um, yeah, give that a crack. Get get buy a round of uh, those mini beer shots, and um, yeah, things will take a different course the next day, and, and you'll win. I might try up at Shep. We'll see how we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully the weather's good there. Uh, you know, it is. Well, it'll be cold, won't it? Because that weekend is the start of the ski season, and Shepparton's. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Gets can get a bit chilly, not snow, but. Uh, once the sun's gone, it, it's it's pretty cool up there. But there's one thing that I've noticed every time I've, I've been up to Shepparton is it sort of when you get into that later afternoon as the sun's setting and the place just drops dead still, yeah. I reckon it's one of the best times to oh, fly. It's, so you're coming towards far. the end of the day. You've had a great day. The place is dead still. The sun's going down. You're getting this nice twilight, and it's just it's gorgeous. Like it, it's so nice. That is the best part. Uh, always the best. It's 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 the light. It's just the mood and the vibe that comes uh, you know, yep. comes over the place. I've been to a number of events where it's been exactly like that, and people's mood changes uh, changes as well. Everyone becomes quite relaxed and just thinking, "This isn't this great? Like this is perfect." But um, yeah, and really, when you think about it, having those two-day events, that's when you generally get the opportunity to do that because most of us pack up and yeah. go home to have dinner with the family and stuff on an average flying um, you know, day. But you know, if you're not a rush to get anywhere and you can hang around, um, that's where daylight saving can be really good uh, here in uh, town here in Victoria and, uh, and in those sort of you know, March, March time when uh, you go to a nice country field. But, um, yeah, good field out at Shepherd and let – I spoke to yeah. Liz Sawyer, the president down there, uh, what, last week or the week before? I'm trying to think why I did. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember. Something to do with their website. Uh, okay, so why do you compete? Because there's always this you know, discussion of, oh, it's unlike competition. Now, I was a member of a club that was so anti-competition. They thought it was the worst thing in the hobby, that it created monsters, and they quite proudly say, we don't encourage competition, we are just a fun-only club, as if you can't have fun flying competition, to the point where they thought that if you flew aerobatics, even for fun, you were thinking about competing and they didn't like we were flying aerobatics. But why compete? Um, Look, (laughs) you say that. I'm a competitive person by nature. I've always played sport, but... The, the, the reason that I think it's good is because it, it improves flying ability in general. So if you are thinking about um, competing and, and when we look at what competing is, and it's like what you said before about precision, to, to, to get good at manoeuvres, it's about being able to put your model exactly where it needs to be. So the position, position in the sky at a certain time and then to do it exactly. So um, when you start to practice manoeuvres and I'll always, um, usually whenever I go flying, do at least one practice of my scale competition schedule, um, and then I might have a bunch of fun flights. Um, so I'll usually do one. It, it just that consistent practicing of putting the plane exactly where you want it, it, it tends to 
that one, it makes you a better flyer. But I think people can tend to get in a little bit of habit of sometimes they follow their model around the sky. So they get their model up and they fly and, and they just sort of follow their model around the sky and they're not really driving it exactly where they want to go. They might do a circuit or they might do a loop and go, okay, yeah, I did a loop. Um, but did you actually do it exactly where you wanted to do it and, and were you making it do exactly what you wanted to do? So just by going out and having that, um, I guess, practice or that routine of, of working on it each time you go out or not even each time you go out, the second time you go out or something like that, it just makes you a better um, a better pilot just in general. So even if you don't compete, um, it, it makes you a better pilot. But um, if you want to practice and, and get good and clean and then you come out and, and we all have a good day, everyone gets along, everyone's super supportive of each other. So you get to meet a lot of people um, in the scene that you might not have seen because they come around from, from uh, other clubs and things like that. And, um, it just, yeah. It's just good for all aspects of, of the aeromodeling if you're competing in at least, you know, whether it's the scale or, or something else as well. I think um, competition just drives better performance. Yeah, 100% agree. And uh, I think that uh, a lot of wise words there. And, you know, well, let's assume that someone's listening to this and, you know, that could be located anywhere in the world because we get people listening to this from all around the world. Uh if you want to get into scale competition, what is your recommendations? What's the pathway into it? Because you know a lot of people say, "Oh, I don't have a scale model. I'm not good enough, or whatever." But what what do you what do you recommend? So so um, first of all, get in contact with your local association for for, for here it's Vic Scale, so the VFSAA. We, we've got um, a Facebook page and, and a website that you can contact us on, um, and, and then you'll probably get in contact with someone like me that says, "We'd love to have you come down and try." Um, you know, this is what you need to know. Um, you know, we we ran um, a practice day last Sunday where we welcomed everyone to come down and, and had um, all the, the likes of David Law, Greg Law, and and, and, Law and all these guys who've been to yeah. Worlds. So you could come down and pick their brain and say, hey, what do I need to know? How, how can I get involved? Um, you can literally rock up to a comp with an ARF, like mine, like a capital or something like that, and on the day, we can tell you this is what you want to do and you'll be fine and, and, and we'll, we'll sit there and we'll show you how to go put a schedule together. We'll show you what, we'll talk you through what manoeuvres you can do. Um, we'll set you up with a, a caller. So so when you're flying, you have a caller to remind you manoeuvres. Um, have someone like that and they'll help you along as well. So literally all you need to do is let us know. We'll tell you when to come down. We'll, we'll make sure you've got everything you need to know before you come down. Um, and we'll welcome you on the day with open arms. So the criteria really is any kind of scale plane is accepted. You're not going to be able to take your trainer plane, but anything. Yeah, yeah, kind any of scale, scale plane. So, yep. So, so, um, so prop planes, uh, ARFs, um, turbo props, jets. A lot of people don't realise that you can fly jets. Um, there's normally a. a um, a 15 kilo weight limit um, is what the international rules are, but we don't sort of stick to that too much. We're just happy for people to come down and, and fly. Um, so any type of plane, as long as it resembles a real one, um, you know, it, that, that's fine. Um, for flying only, you don't need any documentation or, or anything like that. Just come down with your model and, and, and we'll get you flying. 
Oh, that sounds pretty, pretty easy. So hopefully some people sort of like that idea. Now, just give us the web address for the down here in Victoria. I don't know if anyone in Victoria that might want to get on board. Now. It's um, bfsaa.org. Okay, cool. And, of course, you've got a Facebook page as well. Uh, yeah. Which always has a bit of information. You, the, the world champs are coming up, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I think they're in July. So I know that the, the team are getting ready and they're just about to, to start thinking about um, packing up models and, and sending them over. That's a, that's a massive mission for yeah. them. Um, the four weeks they've got to allow to get their models over there. Who's in the team? Um, they confirmed all the numbers? So, yeah, yeah. As far as I know, it's 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 Dave Law, Noel Whitehead, Greg Lett, and Melissa Law. Yeah, I saw them all I down at the club. Yeah, going to practice. You know, I always have to give Greg a yeah. few tips. You know, and I have a lot of fun, a bit of banter. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if he does well, it'd be all my fault. Uh, yeah, if he does poorly, <laughs> it's not my fault. But um, yeah, the, Melissa was telling me about the the um, the challenges of shipping these models across. Uh, Cross long distances, and it's not uh, it's not a cheap exercise. And I tell you what, these guys got to be we we'll give them a round of applause, really, because uh, they really um, make a massive effort to to get there. Yeah, it, it really is, and um, yeah, and it's amazing effort. You know, I, I think that we're probably one of the only countries that, that attend the World Championships outside of of Europe. Um, and so it's a lot of time and effort. And then, you know, like we said before, their willingness to to share the information with, with other people. And um, that's one thing I should mention as well. We have um, the VFSAA has bi-monthly meetings. So every second month we have an actual physical catch-up um, and that's at the Field Naturalist Society in, in Blackburn. And we, we Why do is it Field Naturalists? Are they... Um... Nudist nudist. Yeah. That's what I thought. No, just, I <laughs> so know. you have a meeting in a nudist colony. Oh, no, no, let's no, get involved, people. Well, I promise we're all fully dressed. <laughs> Thank um, God. <laughs> yeah, it's not a sight you want to see, trust me. But, um, yeah, we have a, a meeting there and, and all those guys attended and many other people attended. That's a great opportunity just to talk anything scale, scale building. Um, we have different... Um, I guess, agenda items. So, you know, last week, um, Greg showed us how everyone in the, in the team how to do the scoring on the computer for first-scale competition. So we sort of all know how to do that now. Um, David Law is going to run through some manoeuvres um, and teach us how to maximise our, our points on manoeuvres and, and things like that. And then we also do a show-and-tell. So people bring in models that they're working on, people bring in new technology that they've found, people bring in ideas for tools in the workshop and, and all sorts of things. But it's a really great way for, again, us to all catch up and share knowledge with each other, um, chat about all things scale and flying and building, but, but also to sort of learn more and, and um, absorb from those who, who know more and can educate us. Well, I could come and do a demonstration on how to drink a mini beer if you need me to because, you know. We'd love that. We'd love that. <laughs> I could do an eating and drinking uh, demonstration. I'd probably that's the most value I could add because a lot of – that's the thing with this, that, this, the scale seed, there's some really knowledgeable people in the room. Yeah. If, you're gonna, if you want to become a really good scale modeler, that's the place to go. You'll be mentored and you'll be guided and you'll just learn a truckload and – yeah, you know, it's a good, it's a good little scene, really, when you think about it. Um, but we just need to get some more people involved, as we always do, because uh, you know you need you need the helping hands. And well done for putting your hand up to to get involved as the president. That's a that's a big job. 
Yeah, look, it's just look. I just wanted to help out however I can, and and it's something that I'm sort of really passionate about. And um, yeah, I would love to see it to continue to grow and um, get get more people involved. And probably I think um, one of the main challenges that we have is that um, it, it's a, a sport that does require a certain amount of patience and the building side of it. And and I think probably the younger generations these days, or and not just the younger, generation, a lot of people are sort of yeah, you can you can get a lot of things out of it. A, um, a box um, or, or whatever the situation is but um, the scale side of it adds another element to give you a hobby to do when you when you can't fly because there is all that workshop time but it doesn't have to be as daunting as, as people think you know um, the, the model I'm working on at the moment I, I've just got an ARF or what would be considered an ARF I'm just repainting it um, and, and adding a few little details to it you know, some rivet marks and, and things like that and then, then I'll be able to compete in F4H um, which is a, one of the, you know, one of the, the categories and, and and that's it. We're not sort of talking about years of building or anything like that. Um, people can just buy an ARF and, and tart it up a little bit, new paint job, and, and that's it. You're a scale model. You're, you're involved. You've started the journey. So, um, yeah, it doesn't take much. Well, I'm just thinking about some of the recent guests that I've had on the podcast. And I've got, I'm just looking at a, a list of some at the moment that I've had on recently. And, you know, there's a bunch of people there that builds scale models to a reasonable level. You know, Mario Shembri, he can go and fly scale. Mark Taddy, he's got models that he could go and fly scale with his jets and stuff. Um, David Garl's up in Queensland, has got plenty of models. I think he bought one of yours, didn't you? Or Aaron? He bought, he, he, he's, he's starting the um, the Museum of Clive Butler, I think, up there. Yeah. He's quite a few of my father's models, but I'm going to good hands, so I'm happy. That's that. right. <laughs> You know, Kevin Chislett, who's a builder, also doing laser cut kits. Gavin Sexton doesn't mind building. Like Bill Wheeler up in Queensland. Uh, Trent Smith, last week's episode, who's, who's scratch building composite models. Yep. Uh, you know, yep. so there's still a pretty, there's a vibrant building scene, really. It does amaze me how people do still like to build. Damien Mould, he's a good builder as well. So there's, and he's got a, he's got a Kristen Eagle half size or something, I think. You know, so you know, there's 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 enough people to keep keep these kind of things fed, um, but you know, all we need to do is just keep on putting in front of people, and they'll make the choice. And if you make it look really exciting, then they might even be more inclined. Um, we've seen a you know big resurgence in IMAC, and I, and a lot of that's emanated from the club that we're a member of, out of Pakenham. Um, you know, because we get influenced by seeing other things. I I, I use the Jets as an example. That why has, have turbine jets really taken off? Well, we see some flying at the field, and we fall in love with the idea, and then the next minute we go and get one. So you know, down at Packenham now, everyone's looking at buying you know foamy the, the foamy turbine jets, right? So you know, one person goes and gets it, tells his mate, "Hey, you should really get one of these. They're really good. We can go and fly together." Oh, that sounds like an awesome idea. Vivid imagination, yeah. start running wild. They go and buy it. Down there's two, and then somebody else goes, and then they tell somebody else, "See, this is really good." They see them flying, you know, when you hear that saying, "Gee, that looks like it flies well." And I'm like, yeah, maybe the pilots, a good pilot can make bad, bad planes look good. Uh, as I always say, uh, good pilots make bad planes look good and bad pilots make good planes look bad. But, uh, but you know, and it's one of those things if we just keep on showing people. So I'll uh, always reach out to me um, and I will support whatever you've got going on because I, I just like to see people get involved in, in these kind of things. And the more people are involved, the more happy hands and it just keeps on going so uh and that's a message to everybody who's out there i suppose involved in organizing events just from 
my observation as a marketing legend, Alex, I love looking yep. at human behavior. So I love this podcast <laughs> and sticky people into people's lives. And you, my friend, are a typical aero modeler because you got into cars or something and alcohol. And yeah. Yeah. So you are following the trend. You are following the curve. <laughs> now, uh, so uh, when's that competition again? Just tell everybody what date. So, so quick, Queen's birthday weekend, so June 11th and 12th. Um, the Saturday and Sunday of Queen's birthday. Um, come up. I'll, I'll be sending emails out to those who are, who are on, on the BSFA list, but there will also be plenty of Facebook posts and, and, and things like that going, or just reach out to either me directly or, or to the page, and I'm happy to shoot you through the details. Excellent. That sounds like an awesome plan. So, yeah, jump on that. Now, we're up to that final question, the question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to, and it's going to be interesting to hear what has been your favourite model. So I I know that you ask this every time, and so when you asked me to do it, I, I instantly started thinking about it, and I was um, torn between two, So and, and I'll explain why. So the first one, one of my favourite models is my, my decathlon. And I bought that as a, an intermediate trainer, you know, something to get used to on and, and, and really enjoyed it. And the thing that made me realise it's probably one of my favourites was I put it away in the shed for quite some time while I moved on to other things. And I pulled it out a few weeks ago and I took it out for it. And as soon as I took it off, I went, oh, geez, I like this model. This was a fun thing to, to, to fly. And so, so that was... Um, one of my favourites, and it's just one of those things. I just enjoy flying it. Um, but then the, the second one I put down is, and I only really flew this once or twice at a very high high altitude with what my father's rear weight. His thirty five percent rear weight is just um, for me is the the, the the gold standard for me in in aero modelling. You know, it's, it's a large World War Two model. It's got that big radial in it. Um, it flies like a train, and, and it's just one of those things that. You could just do low passes in it all day and everyone would just stand there and stare at it. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous model. So those two, I, I was stuck between those two. So that's really fun. Well, so there you go. You, you, you know, you've brought – I had a really good run of people giving me one model as being the favourite. Yeah. And now I'm on the decline again. I think last week's episode, uh, Trent maybe, and the one before that, I think when I asked that question, they gave me a couple. So you've, you've given me the double back. Sorry, but mate. But that's Sorry. Right. look. No. I wrecked it. <laughs> you've ruined it. That's it. This podcast. Ruined is, you've ruined this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Who was it? There was. I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was Greg Lepp. I think it was Norm Morris. Something created categories to that question. <laughs> this is my favorite model in this category. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, you take over the show then. <laughs> so, but it's it's you know as they always say, you know, when you're at school. You're sitting exams. Read the question carefully and make sure you yeah. answer it. Actually, that's what yeah, I say to so, my son all the time. When he's struggling with the English homework, he has to write an essay. I say, now, what have they asked you to do? And he goes, oh, well, we've got to do this. No, no, what have they asked you to do? Let's read it together. And I read it very slowly yeah. and he just tells me, hurry up. <laughs> well, that's something that I've learned though with age, I think, and experiences. But anyway, well done. I do like your choices. I haven't seen you. We were away. I'd love to see that. That'd be awesome. I, I, I'll, sh I'll shoot you through some pictures. Yes, if you can. Have you got one of you standing yeah. next to it so I can use it as a thumbnail sure. for this podcast? Yeah, I think I'll do it. Oh, awesome. Send one to me. because uh, Thank you. That's see, everyone. I'm, I'm divulging my secrets. I go and grab photos yeah. in the thumbnail for the um, – when I put it on <laughs> Facebook and stuff like that. But uh, I actually downloaded one today of you with your decathlon, so I've got a fallback. 
no, I think was the one. I, I think I know the one you're talking about. And I, there's only a few of them because usually I avoid the camera because if I've been out of the field, I, I'm usually burn as a turnip by half <laughs> day and boil all over me and struggling, so I avoid the camera if it's ever. Uh, but it's, it's amazing how there are some amazing era modelers out there, and they don't have a photo of them standing next to a model. It's always yeah, nah. <laughs> here's a photo of my plane, and I always go, I yeah. really like your head to be in it, you know, because. <laughs> I don't know. I create these things in my mind, these standards of, you know, I, I it's this this podcast is all about telling people's stories and sharing people's stories like yours and everybody else. And and that's what I love. That's my that's my aim with it. And it's like, well, if I'm gonna have a thumbnail, I want to show the person. So uh so sometimes I've had to go back in midweek and say, Hey, I can't find a photo of you, you know. And I'm I know that I'm stealing some of the photos from somebody somebody else who's taken them, but I'm sure they won't mind. But uh anyway, it's gone to a good cause, but well, That's Alex. exactly right. And yeah, sorry, you're saying? Sorry, right? No, I was just going to say, put, puts, a, puts a face to the name and uh, makes our community a bit smaller, you know, come up and say good name and say you've listened to the podcast or, or whatever it is, yeah. That's true. It's a, it's a, it's a good byproduct and um, I think uh, that is a good thing. I, I, now and again, not that I'm not famous, but now and again people say, oh, they might see a YouTube video that I've done. They go, oh, hi, Andrew, I listen to your podcast and... My standard line is "You're the one," <laughs> but uh, but uh, actually, I did a I did a video shoot with a um for work with a um a guy that does marathon running, long distance runner, elite elite athlete, and he's got a podcast, and and it's amazing. Our little community in modeling is pretty small, so the numbers that I get listening is a sort of a fraction of what he gets for just running. And he's based down here in yeah. Melbourne. And anyway, I was in this video shoot and there's people coming up to me. We're at a running track, a public running track. And people come up going, oh, I love your podcast. And I said to him, oh, you're so famous. And like all these people, you're going to be signing autographs soon. And he's just laughing. He's going, yeah, but uh, no, I've only signed autographs in China, Alex. But um, <laughs> it's not hard. They'll just, at the end of an event, they just come running and, Sign my T-shirt. I signed, I've signed aeroplanes before, and I've got the worst. Oh, wow. I've got the worst handwriting. I can't hardly write my own name properly and read it. But uh, anyway, I'm ruining planes all around the world. Anyway, Alex, it's been a pleasure having you on. Look forward to seeing you down at the field. Bring that weir away down, and don't forget, everybody, the the big scale events happening Shep at Shepparton, where the Shepparton Mammoth event, which no doubt you're going to be at later in the year. If you're not, yep. you better pencil it in. But um, down at the Shepparton field. Uh, which is in what's it called again? Queen's birthday. Yeah, it's Queen's birthday weekend. Actually, get onto Google and type in Shepherd and uh, no, it's the what's the name? I should know the name. I did Valley, Valley Valley Radio Flies. Valley Valley Radio Flies. You'll find the address. Um, Caramomus. That's it. It's out there. Um, so Queen's birthday weekend. Any information you're going to go? What's that web web address again? Uh, vfsaa.org or Type the same into Facebook. Facebook's more up to date. Yeah, VFSAA. Victorian. What's the F stand for? Victorian Flying Scale Association. Crikey. Well, uh, put, uh, more, no. put yes. some more words into the uh, the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Victorian. Exactly yeah, right. <laughs> that's what we need. We have a competition. Who can come up with the longest acronym? Like, you know, longest name. Uh, <laughs> Victorian. What is it? Victorian Flying Scale Aircraft Association. Flying Scale Aircraft Association and and Mini Beer Appreciation Society. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, Alex, thanks for joining me and uh, all the best with the event happening Queen's Birthday Weekend. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away. 
place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. And what an episode it was. Really enjoyed that chat with Alex. Big thank you to Alex Butler for joining me. And don't forget, Queen's Birthday Weekend is coming up down here in Victoria. Uh, get on board with the scale competition, even if you just want to go and have a look. Do not be afraid. Turn up. Of course, it's oh, everybody's first competition is a bit daunting. Get it over and done with. And I'm telling you now, everybody that's got involved in any of these kind of events, absolutely love it. And it's addictive. You'll be going back. So give it a go. Don't forget, check out the vfsaa.org.au, maybe, or could be .org website. But Facebook is the place to go as well. Look up um, VFSAA on Facebook. We're talking um, flying, scale, whatever it's called. Go and have a look uh, on Facebook and um like that page to stay up to date. So have a good week, everybody. Hope you're getting out flying and uh, we'll be back. Got another guest lined up for next week and maybe a few after that. I'm not slowing down. Now looking back, eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche, we're on the run. This is what we waited for.